Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. We hope that this message will challenge you and encourage you on your journey of faith. If you would like to learn more about Journey Church, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at thejourneychurch.cc. Now enjoy the message. We're doing a series. We're in the middle of a series right now called Disciple. And uh, the first week we kicked off that, the series talking about the difference between a student and a disciple. And we talked about how students, students want to know what the teacher knows, but a disciple wants to what, church? Do what the teacher does, right? The disciple wants to do what the teacher does. You know, when Jesus told us to go into all the world, Matthew 28, y'all ain't got these scriptures, I didn't send them to you, don't worry. Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said this. He said, uh, Jesus t- uh, came and he told his disciples, he said, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. God has not called us to go and make converts of all nations, right? God has called us to go and make disciples of all nations, right? Uh, To replicate ourselves, to do what the teacher did and teach other people to do what the teacher did. And we saw that you can be a student without being a disciple, but it's impossible to be a disciple without being a student. Amen. Y'all tracking? It's impossible to be a disciple without being a, a student. You know, the difference with converts and disciples is a convert says yes, but a disciple lives yes. There's a difference. That was really good. That's tweetable. Write that down. Uh, a convert says yes, but a disciple lives yes, right? So that was the week one. Last week, Pastor Kim and I got to share the stage. I love sharing the stage with my bride when we, when we bring these messages because really it's about who can get the most out first. We both like to talk. Remember? It's like hungry, hungry hippos. Who can get the most out there for you guys? And we talked about love, right? And uh, we talked about the fact that the hallmark of a disciple is love. It's not what we do. It's who we are. Just like God, just like God, God, uh, love is not an attribute of God, right? It's not an attribute of God like judgment and wrath and anger, all these things are attributes. It's not an attribute of God. Love is God. God is what? Love. And so God is just because he is love, that's the way that works, right? He's not justice. It's not wrath in love. He's love. And even his wrath comes from a place of love, but his wrath is not what we've been taught it is. That's, that's for Wednesday night, as a matter of fact. Why don't you come on Wednesday night? We'll talk more about the wrath of God. But we talked about the hallmark of disciple is love. John 13, 35. I didn't give you this scripture either. I'm slacking. Don't worry. John 13, 35, Jesus said this. He said, your love excuse me, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. What did it say will prove to the world that you're the disciple of Jesus Christ? Come on, your love for one another, right? How you love one another, the the love life that you live will show people that you look like Jesus. For a lot of us, love is a thing we choose to do ever so often. It's not who we are as a disciple. As a disciple, it's who you are. You're to love. We're to love one another, right? And love requires an investment to see people as created in the image and likeness of God despite their flaws and their sins and their differences. That's what love does. Love looks at you and says, created in the image and likeness of God. 
created in the image and likeness of God. Created in the image and likeness. Well, you don't look like me. Still created in the image and likeness of God. Well, you don't smell like me. Still created in the image and likeness of God. Well, you don't vote like me. Still created in the image and likeness of God. That's what love does. Love esteems a person valuable. Valued. This week, we're going to spend the next few moments talking about another hallmark of a disciple, uh, which, is, which is prayer. That's a hallmark of a disciple. You know, when I gave my life to Jesus, I was like 17 years old. back in 1997. Y'all remember 97? Come on. I know I got to. Come on. Where is your hands? Like you don't remember 97. Come on. Sorry. Like I was born in 97. You should be in team ministry. No, I'm kidding. But I remember giving my life to Jesus, and after I graduated high school, I went into Bible college. And, and as part of this Bible college, the one thing that we did every morning is we had a, a prayer time. We were required to show up to the church that we were doing the, the, the college out of. We showed up to the church, and at 8 o'clock in the morning, we had prayer. And we did prayer from 8 to 9 o'clock in the morning. And the goal for all of us was to see who could actually stay awake through the entire hour-long prayer in the morning. That was, that was the badge of spirituality. If if you got up at the very end to close the, the prayer service time and you didn't have a red mark on your forehead, you were spiritual. <laughs> True story. That's how we looked at it. And, and we looked at that prayer time became the time that we prayed. Well, that makes sense. It's prayer time. But the problem with that is, is when you start relegating prayer to a particular time, we think or we get this mindset that, that we, we can't really pray outside of that time. Right? Well, well, I can pray here, I can pray, but really, the really deep stuff from God comes in that prayer, that prayer time. And that's not accurate. I mean, don't get me wrong, you can have some great prayer times, but prayer times, uh, if we, we relegate our prayer life to that, it, it reinforces uh, this idea of separation theology. Let me, let me just explain to you. What, what I mean by this, right? So today I'm going to help you understand a couple things. Number one, separation theology is one of the biggest hindrances to our relationship with God and the life of being a disciple. The second thing I'm going to help you understand is that sin in our lives does not hinder our prayer life the way you think it does. And number three, everyone in the room has a golden ticket. Yes, this is a Willy Wonka reference. It'll make sense at the end of the message, I promise. All right? So we live in a society that's very dualistic. The word dualism is the, equals this. This is the definition of dualism. It's a division of something conceptually into two opposed and contrasted aspects. It's the state of being divided. That's what dualism is. It's the state of being divided. And the problem with that is our Western culture is very dualistic. It's, it's very much an individualistic uh, culture. It's compartmentalizing. We compartmentalize everything. Have you noticed that? Especially in our society, we compartmentalize everything, don't we? We have our work life. We have our home life. We have our soccer life. We have our PTA life. We have our church life, right? We compartmentalize everything. And, and when we compartmentalize everything, when that is our mindset and our culture, we begin to relate and see God in very much the same, same way, right? God is in the church, but he's not in my work, right? I go to church to encounter God. I go to Wednesday night on the upper floor to encounter God because Pastor Chris said that's where the spiritual people are at. That was a joke, but you get it. Like, we, we have this idea that God is over here somewhere, right, over there somewhere, and we're over here. And at some point, we have to bring ourselves together in the same environment to have connection, i.e., a prayer time. That's the mindset. 
So I encounter God in my prayer time, but you don't just encounter God in your prayer time. That's not the way the Bible speaks of God. You know, the Western culture, again, dualistic, individualism, right? But Eastern culture is collectivism, right? They have this idea of the collective, the whole. Work, home, life all exist at the same place. They're all connected. God is here, but guess what else is also here? Evil is here. And for some of us in Western mindset, the idea that, that God cannot, cannot occupy the same spot or place as evil or sin is distorted. It changes and it distorts our view of God. We have this idea, well, God's too holy. He can't look upon sin. That isn't a falsehood. That is a mindset of dualism. God is too good and good can't be tainted by evil. So God can't look at sin. Even to the point where we go and we see Jesus on the cross and we talk about Jesus being on the cross uh, during Good Friday messages. And we say there's this moment where, where uh, Christ yells out, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. We know that one. He cries out, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? And we're told that the reason Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was because at that moment he bore the sin of the world. And when he bore the sin of the world, God had to turn his back on his son and therefore could not look upon his son. And that's why it got dark for three hours. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The big problem with that is, is that brings dualism even into the Trinity. God the Father, God the what? Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? Not the Holy Bible, Holy Spirit, come on. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And see, for God, we, sometimes I don't think we think when we, when we have theology. I think we're taught a lot of stuff, we believe a lot of stuff, because someone got up here with a microphone and had a loud voice, and they told us to believe it. But we don't really think sometimes what the complications or the, or, or the ramifications would be to our theology, like God turning his back on Jesus because he can't be in the presence of sin. If God can't be in the presence of sin, then Jesus failed miserably at his mission. Come on. If God turned his back on his son, the Trinity implodes. The Trinity implodes. How can God turn his back on the very person he, he indwells in? How, how does that work? It's not. See, the only way you get that theology is to read that theology into the text because I'm going to challenge you. You won't find that scripture anywhere in the Bible that God turned his back on his son. As a matter of fact, you go through Psalms 22. I'm not going to preach a whole message on this, but you go to Psalms 22 and you can read the entirety of Psalms 22. This is where Jesus is quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as you go through the entire Psalms 22, he's speaking of what it feels like to be lost in humanity's depravity, this, 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 this horrible place of, of, of loneliness. But then the, the, the chapter unfolds and he says, but I know you're God. You're not far from me. I know, my God, you don't turn your back on those who need you? I mean, that's the, the psalm he was quoting from. We had this separation theology. I know I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to stretch you a little bit. Don't have to believe everything I say. Go back home and study it for yourself. And if you still don't believe it after that, we can still be friends. Amen? Come on. Thank you for half the church. <laughs> half the church is like, maybe. <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. Right? 
But this, this separation theology, when I was in Bible school, I was taught some very kooky stuff. Now, granted, I was part of a, a Pentecostal denomination, a charismatic denomination. I am grateful for my roots. Don't get it wrong. Don't get it twisted. I love the fact that I came from a charismatic, charismaniacs, Pentecostal church, right? I love the fact that when we got into worship, we get to going and we start two-stepping and going. I start two-stepping on stage while we're leading worship, except for the fact that I can't do that and play guitar at the same time. Plus, I start sweating, and that's too much like cardio, and I'm not in the gym. Amen? Come on. I love that. But some of the kooky stuff that I was taught in my, in my theology, in my Bible school, was this. One, one thing, and again, you won't find this anywhere in your Bible, but you probably heard it taught too. And that was, there was a place where the presence of God dwelled in the temple, which is true. There was a veil, and behind that veil was the tangible presence of God. Great, awesome. But you maybe were taught the same thing I was. And that is that the high priest once a year would go in and make an offering or a sacrifice for the people of Israel. But you know what they had to do before he went in there? They had to tie a rope to his ankles. Has anybody ever heard this before? They tie a rope to the ankle, right? And the reason they tied a rope to the ankle was in case the, the, the priest had some kind of sin that was undealt with or some kind of sin that the sacrifice didn't cover. And he went into the presence of God. And if he was there, he dropped dead. They would be able to pull that priest out from, the t- from behind the veil. I, I, some of y'all are like, that is dumb. I agree. But some of us were taught that. And taught it and believed it and preached the snot out of it. But you can't find it in Scripture. That stuff is read into the text, and it's read into the text when we have a separation theology. This idea that God is over here and we're over here, and God cannot be in the presence of sin. After all, didn't God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden when they sinned? Don't we have that? See, there's separation right there, isn't there? Except for the fact that God went along with them. Because the very first murderer shows up just shortly after that, Cain, who kills who? And here God is having a conversation with Abel, I mean Cain, right? God's having this conversation with Cain, and here's the crazy thing. The conversation goes like this. Cain, where's your brother? And Cain goes, I don't know. How familiar do you have to be for the creator of the universe who knows everything, who found your parents playing hide-and-seek in the bushes, remember? To ask you, to ask you, where's your brother? And you'd be like, I don't know. No separation there. God's like, you know, I saw what you did. God sees what you did. God knows who you are. He knows who you are. And these things, these ideas are read into the text. And sometimes we take scriptures and we pull them out of context but the reality is, is if God cannot occupy, occupy the same place as sin again, then Jesus failed. I said, I thought you were going to preach on prayer. I'm getting there. This is all set up. Amen? Thank you. But if that's the case, then Jesus failed. Because you know the type of people Jesus hung out with? Come on. Sinners. He hung out with Sinners. And he did such a good job at it that they accused him of being a sinner. And he hung out with the drunks, and he did such a good job hanging out with people who weren't just like him that they called him a drunk. And he did such a good job at hanging out with people who liked to eat that they called him a glutton. Someone forgot to tell Jesus, who is God in the flesh, that he can't be in the presence of sin. 
Did your brain just break? I hope not. Good, good. See, it's not making light of sin. I want you to hear me. I'm not, I'm not making light of sin at all. But it's sad that I have to even come back and clarify that statement when we're talking about this. It just shows you how entrenched this theology is in our, in our, our lives. I'm not making light of sin. Are you saying sin's not that big? No, sin will kill you. Amen. Sin, sin does. The, the Bible tells us, that the, the, the scriptures tell us that, this, that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin, sin carries with it its own payment. You ain't got to worry about, I sinned, now God's going to kill me. No, sin carries with it its own reward, its own payment system. And when we entertain it and we live in it, death happens. Death in relationships, death in our, in our mental health, death in our physicality, our physical body, all of that. Death happens when we entertain and live in sin. So I'm not making light of sin, but what I am telling you is that there is no sin that you have committed in the past, currently have committed, or will commit in the future that will ever stop God from speaking and moving in your life. None. Man, y'all got quiet up in here. Good. I see, sin doesn't change the way that God sees you. Some of us had a hard time believing it, but it's true. Sin doesn't change the way God sees you. You know what sin does? It changes the way that you see God. Do you understand? That's like what we talked about in week one. Jesus didn't come to earth to change God's mind about you. God already made his mind up about you. He determined your value and your worth from the very beginning and said, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure we spend eternity together. God has already made up his mind about you. God, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about you. Jesus came to change our mind about God. Right? Right? Can you... When it comes to prayer, it's like, man, if you've sinned, can you pray? For some of us, I'll say for me, there was a good chunk of my, my walk with God, my life as a Christian, where I was fed this theology of separation, theology, this whole mindset of God can't be in the presence of sin. And so I would end up committing sin or doing something that sinful uh, that, that teenagers and early young adults do, right? Some kind of sin. And then, and then it would take me a couple days before I allowed myself to feel okay enough to be able to go to church and actually pray and hang out with God. If you ever found yourself in that position where I haven't measured up to the standards that I put up. That I, I did the thing that I told God I would never do again. And because I did that, man, now I got to almost punish myself. I, I almost got to make myself feel bad enough until I can feel good enough about the thing that I did wrong. That's called penance. And your penance does not equate to God's forgiveness. You begging God to forgive you does not equate to God's forgiveness. Your repentance, a great thing to turn around, to think differently about what you just did or the actions or the lifestyle that you're living. It's great to have repentance and, and to change your thinking, but your repentance is not the currency that purchases your forgiveness. Well, everybody's thinking hard today. Come on, somebody. If you 
can't pray after you've sinned, then you have a dualistic view of your relationship with God. If you can't pray when you're busy, then you have a dualistic view of God. If you can't pray when you feel like crap, then you have a dualistic view of, of God. It's a mindset. It's this separation theology running on the forefronts of our minds. But let me just encourage you. God is not over there and you're over here. Even when you worship, God is not way up there and you're way down here. Do you know where God is at? He occupies you. See, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He occupies you. Where you go, there God goes. When you do great things, God's right there with you when you do great things. When you do bad things, guess who is still right there with you? God. Because he's promised he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Never not will I leave you. I preached a good message on that a couple months back. Never not will I leave you. Nor never not will I forsake you. Never. See, our prayer life and I use that term loosely, but, but, but our ability to commune with God, and not just in a moment, not just in a box, but in a, a regular everyday moment, tells a lot about how we perceive God. See, there's a difference between knowing of God and knowing God. And if I can't pray when these different things have taken place in my life, then I know of God. If, if my prayer time, one hour a day, is the only time that I really can connect with God or the only time that I allow myself to connect with God, you know of God, but you don't know God. You, you should be knowing God. You, you should know him. That's what gnosko, that's what eternal life is, right? John 17, 3, you can check it out. It says Jesus is praying in the garden, and he says, and, and this is eternal life, that they may know you and your son whom you've sent. That is, that's eternal life. So communing and, and having this continual prayer life with God tells us a lot. I'm not saying that a prayer moment or a prayer time is a bad thing. I'm saying if it's the only time you pray, it's a bad thing. It's much like, much like when you're in a relationship, right? My wife and I, we've been together. This is we're going 26 years that we've been together, right? Th- oh, thank you. And, and been married. We're going 22 years being married, right? I love my wife. But I do not think that my relationship with my wife would go very well if I told her the only time that we get to talk is 8 o'clock in the morning. From 8 to 9, I'll put you on my calendar, and we'll work things out. How well do you think that relationship, how much can I get to know someone if I'm only spending one hour with them a day? Not very well. We do date nights, my wife and I. We love date nights. We love getting away and going to a restaurant to sit down and talk without our kids being there and with all these other distractions. That's great. But the substance of a relationship is not made in a date night. The substance of a relationship is made waking up and doing life with each other every single day. You learn the little quirks about each other. You learn that they have no concept whatsoever of putting lids back on toothpaste. You learn that stuff real quick, right? So she's up there with the teens. She'll watch it later. But the toilet paper rolls, we talked about this. They go over the top and down, not underneath. And if you're date nighting with somebody and that's the only time you spend with them, you're never going to know that they don't understand the patent that was filed for the toilet paper roll. 
And they don't understand that it goes over the top and down and not from underneath. It's a patent thing. If, you put a t- if I go to your house and I use your restroom and your toilet paper is on the wrong way, I'll fix it. I will absolutely fix it. Put your toothpaste lids back on your toothpaste things. I know, I'm weird. Don't invite me to your house. But how much better is life when you're doing life with someone? Date nights can supplement the life that you have. The same thing works with prayer. I pray. I talk to God more now than I have ever talked to God in my life. I have great prayer moments, right? But they supplement the life that I have with God. I talk to God normally, just like I'm talking to you. I don't, I don't put on my church voice when I talk to God. There is Heavenly Father. I thank thee for thy day. I, if you're praying like that, why? You don't talk to people that way. I'm sure God's getting a kick out of it. Like, you're not even using thee and thy right, you know? <laughs> right? God's like, what did you say? I talk to God normal. I'm like, God, these people you created, <laughs> the ones that drive, idiots, all of them. And then God deals with my heart. I'm not saying you should say that. That's a very bad thing to say. But, but God deals with my heart. And, but it's, it's real time. It's a real time thing. I'm listening to the Lord as he's speaking to me. Someone's like, well, I need to pray. But you ask me to do something. I'm not going to tell you. Let me pray about it. I'm going to listen for it. I don't need time to pray about it. Just listen. Talk. Prayer is not, prayer is not one-way communication. Prayer is not you getting before God and talking. Amen. That's not prayer. I have three kids. My oldest is 17 now. That's crazy. First of all, I don't feel like I could have anyone over 16 at all. But he's 17, right? Caden's quiet. Caden does not talk a lot. But I have two other kids who make up for that. Micah, who is 11, and and Joanna, who is 9, talk a lot. We can be in a car riding around, my wife and I, and Micah and Joe in the car, and they are carrying on five different conversations with people who aren't even in the car. Just talking and talking and answering questions that nobody asked. Do you know, like, your kids do that before? They answer questions. They just keep talking and talking and talking. Or they'll come to, they'll come to us at nighttime. They like to do this, like, when the night's settling down, and, and Kim and I will sit down on the couch, and we're like, all right. And they come, and they stand in front of us. They're like, so let me tell you about this thing that happened today. And they go off. And then we're like, stop, stop, stop. Let me say something. But I think that's how we relate with God a lot of times. We get into our prayer time, and and sometimes prayer can feel overwhelming because we think we have to talk the entire time. Then we run out of things to say. And then we're just babbling, which is the Bible tells us not to do anyway. It's not to babble. We just run out of things to say. And then super Christians will be like, well, that's when you pray in the spirit and pray in tongues. And then you just pray in tongues the whole time. No, you don't have to always be making noise when you're praying. I would even dare say that prayer is more about listening than it is about talking. 
The ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and I've heard this so many times, and I've heard it preached so many times, and it's true. The ministry of Jesus was powered through prayer. I mean, good gracious. It was, there was so much prayer that went on with Jesus. But it's funny because when you go and you read these scriptures about how Jesus went off to pray, you'll notice something very interesting that maybe you haven't noticed before. It's like John chapter 12. Pull that up. John chapter 12, 49. Jesus says, I don't speak on my own authority. He said, the Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. Did you, did you see? It says, and I know his commands lead, whoa, whoa. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father, come on, church, whatever the Father tells me. See, I say whatever the Father tells me, which shows you that the prayer life that Jesus had had more to do with him listening to what God was telling him to do than it had to do with him telling God what he wanted to do. That's not to say that you don't talk to God in your prayer life. I feel like I have to qualify it. It's not. It's not to say that you don't talk to God. It's not to say that you don't share with what's going on in your heart. That's great, but you should probably be listening twice as much as you're talking. So if you talk for 15 minutes, minutes. How about listen for 30? Okay, moving on. Luke, Luke 5, verse 16. Look what it says. It says, and Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for what? For prayer. This wasn't Jesus's time to talk God's ear off. It was his time to listen. It was his time to listen. And again, I think too many of us, we spend so much time talking. Even when you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, it says they prayed all night long, but we only have a couple of verses that tells us what Jesus said. Lord, if, this is a, if there's any other way than for me to have to die for these people to make this thing work, I'm down. Do you know that's what Jesus prayed? He did. He prayed that. If, you don't, if you've not read it, he did. He, Jesus was like, mm, I've seen Peter. If there's any other way, I've talked to Judas, if there's any other way. He said, but not my will, Lord, your will be done. And he submitted to the love of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Are you guys still with me this morning? Okay. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, it says this. Never stop. Come on, church. Never what? Never stop praying. And if you've been taught that prayer is just you talking God's ear off, wow. How do you, how you never stop praying? Another, another scripture says, another translation says, um, pray always or continue to pray. You know, that makes a lot more sense when we understand that that prayer is really about being sensitive to the Spirit of God and listening and hearing the voice of God. See, I can never stop praying if I allow myself to stay in community and communion with God, and I'm listening. I can speak. I can share. I can ask. I can talk. I can question. But, man, I'm going to tell you, listening is important. It's so important. Why is it hard for us, though? Why is it hard for us to stop and, and listen? Why? Why is it so hard for us to stop and listen? Some people are like, well, we talk too much. Very true. Or there's so many things going on. Very true. 
But why do we stop? Why is it so hard for us to stop and listen? It's found in the, the reason is found in the question. Excuse me. Because we have a hard time stopping and listening. We're overstimulated. Have you noticed that? We're incredibly overstimulated. I know I'm overstimulated. It's hard for me to sit down. It really is hard. I know some of you are thinking, no way. It really is hard for me to sit down, I promise. I'll sit somewhere and I start, my legs start shaking. And my one leg starts shaking, and then my other leg starts shaking. And I'm like, got to go, got to go, got to go, got to move, got to go. Because I'm overstimulated. I have to be purpose. So when I do my, my best listening, my best prayer time with, with the Lord is me driving around. I drive a lot. I do. I have a whole hour-long route in the back of this neighborhood. I can show somebody they want to know it. But it's a whole hour-long drive in the back neighborhood. It's slow, 15 miles an hour. People pull around me all the time. Why are you going so slow? Me and Jesus hanging out. Do you close your eyes when you drive? Only sometimes. <laughs> so some of us is hard because we're overstimulated. For some of us, it's a fear. I, like for some of us, the thought of sitting down and listening to God and not being the only one talking when we're in prayer, it's an intimidation factor. There's fear that's associated with it because we think because of the separation theology that we've been handed down, we think that sitting long enough in the presence of God is going to give God ample time to point out all of our flaws and to highlight all the sins and all the things we've ever done wrong in our life. And that really it's just a moment for God to dig in on us. But that's wrong. It's not the moment for God to dig in on you. That's not how this whole prayer thing works. And if that's how you've grown up hearing about prayer, thinking about prayer, I'm so sorry. It's a beautiful thing to be in the presence of God, hanging out with him. It's a beautiful thing. Hebrews 4, and we're going to be wrapping up. It's my first of five closings. At least I'm just coming to grips with it, guys. All right, Hebrews 4, verse 14. I'm just kidding. We'll be out here in a few. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, And so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Keep going. It says, This high priest of ours understands our what? Come on, he understands our weaknesses. For for he faced all the same testing as we do, yet he did not sin. Go to the next verse. It says, so let us, what church? Come on. Let us come what? Boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there, go back, there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Boldly. You have a golden ticket. You ever watch Willy Wonka? The, the original. Not the scary one that came out afterwards. The original one. The more scarier one. <laughs> Willy Wonka, you remember that? The whole premise was like to get five golden tickets, I believe it was, to go into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You have a golden ticket. You get to go in and you get to do it. You got a golden ticket. I've got a golden ticket. You remember that? I'll sing it. I'll sing all of it another time. 
you got a golden ticket. And that golden ticket gave you access into a place that other people wish they could go. You have a golden ticket. Now, which of the five are you? Well, that's up for you to decide. Are you Charlie or Augusto or who are you? I don't know. Veronica? Doesn't matter. You have a golden ticket. You have a golden ticket to come boldly to God's gracious throne. Every time, all the time. You have the ability to do that. And I love this because he says boldly. Well, you don't go somewhere boldly that you're scared, do you? You don't go somewhere boldly. That you, that's not, it doesn't occupy the same thing. You come boldly. Well, if I'm going to come boldly to the throne of God's grace, it, I must know that as I'm coming boldly to the God's gracious throne, that there's something that's going to be reciprocated in that for me. There's going to be grace there. There's going to be mercy there. It says, "Great, find great, or mercy and grace in a time of need. You see, well, I've done this wrong or I've done that wrong, and, and I'm, I'm scared to go before God because I, you know, I know he saw me do what I did, but I'm, I'm scared of what he's going to say to me about that. Well, see, come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's what mercy is. Hey, come boldly. To my, to my gracious throne so I can give you the mercy that you need that will help release you from the thing that is oppressing you and holding you down. He said, obtain grace. Do you know what grace means? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. What reason do you have to not go before God's gracious throne in prayer? You don't have any. Because on some days you need grace. Amen. And on some days you need mercy. Amen. I need mercy on more days than I need grace. But both are located in the very presence of God. And so the very thing that even keeps us away from him is combated by running to him. God's not going to beat you down. The life of a disciple includes a life of prayer, a life of communion with God. A life of friendship, to hang out with God and talk to him just like he's normal, just because he is, just like he's you, yeah. Talk, talk to you. People think I'm weird if they see me talking to myself. I didn't say do it in front of everybody. Look what it says in Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Romans 4, verse 7, it says, Oh, for what joy whose disobedience is forgiven, whose, sight, whose sins are put out of sight. Keep going. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Where do you go to receive that? To the throne of your gracious God. That's, that's mercy. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. For God was in Christ. There's that verse for you. Christ on the cross, God turning back on him. Impossible. Can't be. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself no longer counting sins against them. I love the New King James because it actually has it right. The word, the phrase no longer counting people's sins is not in the original language. The, what's in the original language, New King James, it says not counting people's sins against them. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he's given us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Where do I go when I need grace? I come to the throne of God. See, prayer is not just for us as individuals, but it's for us as the collective, as the body. 
And prayer, it connects us to the heart of God. It causes us to hear the will of God. And prayer reveals the love of God. Those are three good points. I'll say them again, right? Prayer connects us to the heart of God. Prayer causes us to hear the will of God. And prayer reveals the love of God. Let me invite the worship team to come back up. And they're going to play a song. And and what I want to encourage you to do, listen, as we're doing a response in this moment, you do not even have to stand back up if you don't want to. If you want to stand and worship, great. If you want to sit and just spend a moment praying, listening to the Lord, I'd encourage you to do that. I am actually going to step off the stage, and I'm going to come over over in this area. Actually, I'll go to the back of the sanctuary. And if there's anything that I could be praying for you that you would like me to pray for you about, I would love to pray for you. I'll even eat some Altoids before we pray. That way my breath doesn't stink. Sound good? <laughs> That's all right. Let me, uh, let me pray for you guys. Let me pray real quick. Bow your heads, close your eyes.